join with me in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew 13, um, at the end of our study together, we will be uh, uh, joining together in a time of prayer for our invite your one emphasis, and uh, that will be led uh, at the end of our service by uh, my dear bride, a member of the uh, prayer team, uh, we'll be uh, doing that. Uh, then um, I will probably, during the last song on Wednesday night and Sunday morning, I will probably have a seat during that time. And want to let you know that shouldn't be that big of a deal. But on Wednesdays, I start standing at four and don't get to sit down till seven. Uh, well, I do sit down for dinner, um, but uh, my plan is, is after dinner to hang out with the uh, boys uh, and uh, goof around with them in the gym some. And uh, so I'm, I'm on my feet a whole lot, and I also want to gather myself during that time, and then Sunday morning as well. If uh, there are others of you that need to do that for physical reasons, uh, you need to feel free to, to do that. Now, don't everybody do it, okay? Uh, physically, most of you are able to do that, but uh, I like to gather myself during that time. Um, we will look tonight at Matthew 13 and its contribution to missions. And here in this text, we have parable after parable after parable in the Gospel of Matthew that advances Jesus' thoughts about missions. A parable means to throw light or to throw beside or to fall alongside. And a parable then is a story placed alongside a spiritual truth that illustrates it. Jesus was not fond or given to describing himself as the existential ground of being. He didn't use those kinds of words and that sophisticated theological vocabulary. He talked about fish and fishing. He talked about farms and farming. And he talked about lights. And he talked about nets. And he talked about leaven. And he talked about mustard seeds. In other words... A parable happened to be an ordinary, everyday occurrence in life that he used to illustrate a divine truth, a spiritual truth. Uh, one preacher has said that a sermon without illustrations is like a house without windows. I'd say it's like a car without windows. It's hard to know where you're going without some clarity. And just imagine if you drove across country in a car that all it had was a front windshield. I'm a little claustrophobic, and so um, I would uh, have a very difficult time with that. I need windows, and sermons are much the same way, and that's what we find here in Matthew chapter 13, and Jesus first begins by explaining the extent of missions, chapter 1 through, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, and he uses it in terms of insight, the extent of the insight of God into his son's gospel is what he does here. Uh, there's a story, and then there is uh, a selection, there's superiority and significance to insight. The story is in verses 1 through 9. He said, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. Now these farmers didn't have the sophisticated machinery or methods that we use today in commercial farming. They would have a bag of seed, would pick up a handful and indiscriminately broadcast it all over the place. Now there were walking paths between the places where they would 
uh, farm between their fields. And in this case, you had some of the seed fell on one of those hard, worn paths. Those paths may have been centuries old. It's entirely possible. Land was supposed to stay in the family year after year after year. If it escaped the possession of a family, it would return. But nevertheless, you had to have walking paths, and they made walking paths through these fields. And here in verse number 4, as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and devoured them. Some fell among, on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up and they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up, and they choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. This is the story. Now, you have several elements here. You have a sower that broadcasts the seed on soil. Some of it, most of it, is not productive. The only that is productive is that which falls on the good soil. There are four types of soil here. There are four different results. And it does not depend, the results, the yield, the produce, do not depend upon the sower or the farmer. Do not depend on the seed. Now that could be true in farming. There may be some farmers that simply don't know what they're doing. Or they may be having a bad day. Could be there's an equipment breakage or breakdown. Or maybe the equipment is worn and it doesn't perform as well as it should. It could be in some farms today that uh, the seed is not good. Well, that's not the problem here in this text. The sower is perfectly competent and the seed is perfectly healthy. That's not the problem here. The productivity of this farmer's operation does not depend on him or the quality of the seed in this story. All of that's fine. It depends upon one thing. The quality of the soil. It's the soil. Some of it falls on these walking paths and the birds come and snatch it up. And then some ends up falling on, a, um, on some uh, ground that underneath is a thin layer of limestone. That's true all over Israel. And uh, it sprouts up, but then the heat comes and scorches it because it doesn't have much root. And then some of it ends up falling among the thorns, and it's choked out. Now Jesus is making it very, very clear here. The sower is not the problem. The seed is not the problem. The soil is the problem, and he will apply it in verse number 18 to 23. You've probably already applied it in your heart and mind because of the second item here, and that's the selection of the insight. Insight into God's Word and His Gospel is a supernatural act. Listen to me. No one understands and perceives the truth of God until God intervenes and acts, and God doesn't always do it. God does not give everyone insight into His Word. He is selective according to verse number uh, 10 and 11. The disciples came and said, Well, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. God is selective. Why is that? Verse 12 and 13. Whoever has to him more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. Hearing they do not hear. Nor do they understand. In other words, there are some in this crowd that, are not, that do not appreciate the truth of the word of God. And have no intention of obeying it. 
From them, God hides the truth and conceals himself. God, however, will unveil the truth to those who appreciate it and to those who have an intention of obeying him. When you find someone who has a heart for the truth, an appreciation for the truth, and the intention of obeying it, then you've got someone that God will share his truth with. And that's what we're talking about here in this text. Now, Jesus goes on and talks about the superiority of the insight. There were prophets, according to verse 16 and 17, that longed to see what the disciples saw, and they didn't get it. It wasn't time. The world was not ready, nor was Israel. But the disciples got it because it was in God's timing, and the world was ready for it. This gives them all the more reason to appreciate and obey the truth. And beloved, just think about all that we've got. We've got more than any disciple ever had. And some people are bored and disinterested in the Word of God. They don't want the church to be necessarily a center for biblical teaching and preaching. They want it to be an entertainment center. They want it to be a place that grovels before the membership in the community, putting their thoughts and opinions and desires first and ahead. They want it to be a retail store to produce religious products for those who come. Ladies and gentlemen, God will have none of it. He makes it a place where the earth hears his voice. And this is what we've got here. This is a superior message. And what we have today is even more full and robust and vivid than what these disciples have. All the more reason to appreciate and obey the word. Then there's the significance of it all. Verse 18. Read there with me. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Anytime a teacher teaches, a witness shares, a preacher preaches, Satan is especially active. There is an intensification of spiritual warfare, and it blinds those who hear. So that's the devil. He interferes with the ministry of the word. He who received, in verse 20, the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and is really, really impressive initially. Oh my goodness, you grab a hold of this person and make that person a teacher or a deacon immediately. That's what some churches are fond of doing. This one hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself. The first problem was the devil. The second problem is the flesh, the heart, the soul of the second person. But endures only for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Well, then we move on to the third soil. Now, he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So we've got the devil, the flesh, or the world, or the way we often put it, the world, the flesh, the devil, are intensely activated whenever there's the preaching and ministry of the word. There is an intense warfare that commences whenever someone begins to minister the word of God in personal witnessing, in a Bible study, in a preaching uh, event, Every time that happens, there is intense warfare that takes place. But then you do have verse number 23. He who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. He, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Some hearts 
in their current condition, but not all, have the potential of producing the fruit of faith. So here's what a biblical ministry will look like. A biblical ministry will indiscriminately distribute the word. But then there will be a warfare that will take place. And there are some that will not understand because of satanic interference. There will be some that will receive it and they will respond with joy, but they will fall away soon when it gets tough. Then there are some who will receive it, but they will fall away because they are more interested in the world. And then there are some who will be fruitful to different degrees. A biblical ministry will almost always be uh, mixed in its results. And it's not always the preacher's fault, the teacher's fault, or the fault of the ministry of the Word. It's simply the way spiritual warfare goes. Now, last 15 years, many of our people, Southern Baptists especially, have gotten tore up over the large number of church members who never come to church. And some of the embarrassing ones that do. <laughs> they have. And so what they've done is that they have blasted and condemned evangelistic churches and accuse them of all sorts of manner of evil, of all these false converts. And uh, as a result, what they've done is that they have pulled back completely, just like the evangelicals, pulled back almost completely on evangelism, is what they've done. They've given up on it, because they don't want any bad converts. Well, guess what? Not only do they not have any bad converts, except the ones still in their church, not only do they not have bad converts, they don't have any good converts. You see, and that's the risk that we've got to take. If we're going to obey God, we're going to have some fall on stony ground. We're going to have some that fall on the wayside. We're going to have some that fall among the thorns. But thank God we've got people that are fertile soil and they become productive. Some 100, some 60, some 30 fold. So that's the extent of missions. It extends to the whole world. And then there's the message of missions, verses 24 through 43, with a brief break in verses 31 through 33. Um, this is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, the tares here were most likely the weed darnel, very similar to wheat. In fact, you couldn't tell the difference between the two until uh, both matured and began to bear uh, their uh, own uh, produce. And Jesus picks up on that in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. This is what farmers would do to each other when they got mad at each other. One might take Darnell and just chunk it throughout his uh, field uh, amongst his um, good seed. But when the grain, verse 26, had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Well, Jesus goes on to explain this in beginning in verse number 37. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Here, here's, a, here's the point about tares and wheat. One, tares are always similar to wheat. That's the point. Tares are similar to wheat. Look at your neighbor and say, tares are similar to wheat. They are also second, sown among the wheat. And then third, at the end of the age, they will be separated from the wheat. Now here's the point. Jesus warned that the devil actively plants impressive lost people in churches. 
They are knowledgeable. They are impressive. They are spiritual. They are faithful. And only God can tell the difference. Tares amongst the wheat. Now listen, listen, listen. I'm not talking about the hypocrite who intentionally appears to be spiritual on Sunday and lives like a wild maniac during the week. I'm not talking about that. I think of Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan in San Francisco. On Saturday nights, he would play at strip clubs. On Sunday mornings, he would show up and play organ at a church and see some of the same men in both places. And that inspired him to start the church. I'm not talking about those kind of people. No, 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 no. There is no, not necessarily any bad behavior implied in this text. I'm talking about good, lost people. Now, dear sweet people, please hear me. And don't ever forget what I'm about to say. The genuine Christian is more than the product of good culture. The genuine Christian is more than the product of good parenting, good education, and a good environment. There has got to be something in the genuine Christian's life. If the person is really saved, there is something in that person's life that is the fruit and the product of something other than good teachers, good parents, and a good church family. In other words, they've got some things in their life where they say, thank God for my teachers, and thank God for my parents, and thank God for my church, but they didn't do this in me, Jesus did. There's something in me that only Jesus produced. And listen, I've heard testimonies before, and I've talked to plenty of people before, and they're lovely, sweet, um, very impressive people. But when they're done with their story, their parents get more glory than Jesus does. Their church, their environment, their teachers, and almost nothing is said of the Son of God. Listen, a decently raised atheist could give their testimony. Jesus, it doesn't, I don't hear that Jesus has done anything in their lives. And so we, it behooves us to ask the question, is there anything in my life that cannot be explained by good human culture or human raising or instruction? Is there anything in my life that can only be explained by the supernatural presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, I might be a tear. Again, we're not talking about awful behavior. We're talking about enormous differences between good people. Good people. That's Jesus' point here. That's the message of missions. Listen, you've got to understand, it's not the good people that go to heaven and the bad people that go to hell. It's the saved people that go to heaven and the lost people that go to hell. That's the difference. That's the difference. Has Christ really come into my life and made a difference? And I've got to say, I... Uh, um, Answering that question is a little bit easier for me uh, because of my background. I, I came up very secular. Uh, I didn't come up in a Christian family. Uh, moral, but not, not Christian. I was raised uh, and taught the right things, but inside, I was like what Jesus said in Matthew 23, uh, dead men's bones. I was like a whitewashed sepulcher and death inside. And so when I got saved, I experienced a change that obviously was not produced by my family or my teachers, who were all very good, mean, but they were good, <laughs> or a positive culture. And I grew up in a culture that supported what my parents wanted to do. 
But there was a change that came in my life that I can't explain in any of those terms. A different body, excuse me, the same body. Lord, I wish I had a different one. (laughs) But a different person on the inside. A different person. So there's got to be something in us that cannot be explained in terms of good parents, good teachers, or a good environment. It's got to be ascribed only to Jesus Christ. Then there are the agents of missions. Verses 31 through 33. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Now mustard seeds were proverbial for smallness, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, at least in Israel. But when it was grown, it's greater than all the herbs. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air, uh, image of of the nations, of the Gentiles, uh, some think, and nest in its branches. And so uh, there's a small beginning here but it grows greater than all. Agents of mission have got to see the kingdom and the word of God like this. It's amazing what just hearing one Bible verse with one lost person can do. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's amazing. The swords of men stab people and they die. The word of God stabs and it makes people live. And that's what happens. Then leaven uh, is the next parable in verse number 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal uh, till all was leaven. The measures are satas. Uh, there are three of them. That's enough to feed a hundred people. And he says here, this, this woman takes just a little bit of leaven, puts it in, Enough dough to feed a hundred people and it leavens the whole thing. That's the power of the presence of Christ and His Word. That's what can happen. And quite frankly, William Carey would agree. No more than a third grade education, a part-time preacher, a shoe cobbler otherwise, not much support, living in, frankly, uh, in many ways, a hyper-Calvinist area where they use theology to argue against evangelism and missions. Very little support. Uh, underfunded when he went to India, nearly collapsed financially, had to take a job and be a part-time translator when he got to India, but by his work and faithfulness, launched the modern missionary movement, which continues and burgeons around the world until this day, at least the United States. Uh, Then, early 20th century missionaries would say the same. You've never heard of them, but in 1904, 1906, there was a great awakening in the United States and Europe, Wales especially, And it burst on the scene and sent missionaries all over the world, most of whom you've never heard of. And they won people to Christ who won people to Christ who today are winning people to Christ. There's such an awakening going on in Africa today as a result of their work is that you can't understand Africa without understanding the Christian faith. And you can't understand the global Christian faith without first understanding Africa. It's so influential, so large, so booming, so growing. That's the power of the leaven. Now, I want you to notice that the mustard seed being planted outdoors is typically what a man would do. And the leaven in the kitchen is usually something a woman would typically apply. So men and women can both be used of God to advance the kingdom of God. So there's one point from two parables about the potential of the kingdom. There is no room for men or women in the kingdom to decline into defeatists. We always believe the future is onward, upward, forward. No retreat, no defeat, no reservation, no hesitation. It's onward, upward, forward to the glory of God. And that's how we see the future. We move on. We press on. We don't give in to defeat. And we continue moving forward. 
Then there's the Lord of Missions, verses 44 to 46. Now, like the parable of the leaven and like the parable of the mustard seed, uh, these two parables here uh, make one point as well, but not about the potential, but about the value of the Lord in the kingdom. There's the parable of hidden treasure in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Uh, Freeman and Chadwick, a couple of uh, uh, New Testament historians, wrote that before the days of banks, people had to have a place to put their valuables. They didn't have banks or safety deposit boxes in which to do that, and so they found a place to put their money and their jewels documents and other valuables. Jeremiah did this, for example, in Jeremiah 32. And oftentimes they would, um, uh, they would deposit the, their goods and their valuables into jars and bury them in a field. They would oftentimes do that. Even today, uh, folks are still finding things that were buried centuries and millenniums ago in Israel. Uh, that's why there is such a thing as archaeology uh, to some degree. Uh, sometimes the owner was uh, displaced uh, or died, and uh, some other adverse circumstance would come along, and they would leave behind the buried treasure, and someone might stumble upon it. Now, Jewish commentator David Stern said, if treasure is unmarked, now this was the law then, if the treasure in the field is unmarked and found on public land, it belongs to the finder. If it's marked, the owner must be sought. If it's natural, like gold or diamonds, and unmarked on unmarked uh, or private land, it belongs to the owner of the land, and that's why the finder bought the field to become the owner. This particular man stumbled upon some treasure, and he thought it was so valuable, he sold all he had, liquidated all of his assets, took them, and purchased the field so he could possess the treasure. Well, that's similar to what happens with the merchant in the next parable, verse 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Ancient merchants would travel and scour the earth for treasures, uh, especially pearls. They were especially fond of pearls when they found them uh, in the rare event that they did. And some of them were so valuable in the ancient world that they were worth liquidating all of your assets and taking them and purchasing a pearl of great price. And there were actually merchants who, who did this. Now, these are two parables with one point about the value of the Lord and the kingdom. And Craig Blumberg, in his commentary, summarizes the point. He wrote that disciples must always abandon anything that would stand in the way of wholehearted allegiance to Christ and the priorities of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom are worth any sacrifice he requires of us. In fact, I've gotten to where I don't think much of them are sacrifices at all especially when measured in terms of what he gives back. It's marvelous. Then there's the command to missions, an implicit command in verses 47 to 52. Uh, here, Jesus talks about commercial fishing, not with a rod and reel, but with a net, uh, which is what uh, the early disciples were. And remember, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he probably had in mind commercial fishing with boats and nets, not rods and reels. Uh, again, the kingdom of heaven, in verse 47, is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some fish of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into vessels, but threw the bad away. 
And so it will be at the end of the age, Jesus says. Uh, and so what, what uh, Jesus is implying here is a command to go into the sea, which was an uh, image for the nations, the Gentiles, and to fish for men. And he imagined us casting as wide a net as we possibly can and drawing it together and bringing in all the fish it contains. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. When you do that, you take a risk of bringing in bad fish. But that's what we have to live with, and that's what we have to do. And the New Testament gives measures for handling that. You require baptism for church membership. You teach the Word of God. You keep people accountable, those kinds of things. That's how you take care of that. What you don't do to keep the bad fish out of your nets is that you don't keep the nets in the harbor and stop fishing. I wish we could hear that again. Not you, you just heard it, but the rest of the Christian world. There are people that are so allergic to bad fish, they've quit fishing altogether. God has His ways of separating them out. This is the nature of ministry. Now listen, biblical ministry will have different fruit in terms of farming and will draw different kinds of fish. Some good, some bad, some desirable, some undesirable, some true converts, some false converts as well. The way to deal with that is not to stop fishing or to cease farming. The way to deal with that is to implement the New Testament. If we obsess over the purity of the catch, if we do that, we, run the, we, we, we will not get bad fish except the ones we already got. But nor will we get the good fish either. Nor will we get the good fish. Now, Jesus has just illustrated the way things take place in the souls of human beings when they encounter or sometimes collide with the Word of God. And then the next story illustrates everything we've said. The next story in Matthew 13 unfolds just about every truth and every lesson in this text. Look with me, beginning in verse number 53. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. When he came to his own country, he sowed some seed. He cast a net. That's not the word used here, but that's, that's what he's doing. What did he do? When he came, he taught them. He taught them in their synagogue of all places. So that they were astonished. You need to read that negatively because of uh, verse 57. They were astonished. They were outraged and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? That's a dig. That's a social dig. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? I mean, we're lowly people of Nazareth. Why does he think he's better than us? Where did this man get all these things? And so they were offended in him. But Jesus said to them, Well, a prophet's not without honor. I mean, everywhere a prophet goes, he has honor, except in his own hometown and among his own people. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because he had faulty methods, right? There, there was something faulty about his message. No, sometimes that may be the case. But when it came to Jesus, he did not do many mighty works there because of their 
unbelief. That's what happened. Well, I don't know about you, but I see application to invite your one all over this, don't you? I sure do. You have to understand, if we're going to penetrate the unbelief of lost people, we've got to have a mighty movement of God. That's why your tears and brokenness in prayer and in witness are the most urgent thing our region needs. Without it, corpses will never live again. That's why we want to pray. You want to come and lead us?